If you imagine a husband and a wife holding together in their arms their firstborn child. And for many of you, that's not an imagination. That is a memory that you have of holding that firstborn child. And there is no parent, there is no parent who holds their firstborn in their arms. And you think about the, the dreams and the hopes that they might have in that situation. Nobody's thinking, I really hope this baby grows up to be a murderer and a fugitive and a wanderer. Nobody wants that. No parent wants to see their child grow up, especially no Christian parent, and wander away from the presence of the Lord. Nobody wants that. Or nobody really sets out to ruin their life. There are no New Year's resolutions that say, you know, last year was really blessed and I'm in a place of just security and good right now. I would really like to mess that all up. And I'd like to go from security and blessing to restlessness and futility. Let's go, New Year. Nobody says that. And while no one sets out to wander away from the Lord, while no one sets out to ruin their life, it happens all the time. Maybe many of you have had children grow up and wander from the Lord. You've had friends and loved ones go away from the presence of God. You've seen sin destroy people's lives. How does that happen? Not so that we can do that, but so that we can stop it. And if you even feel like, hey, that's, that's me, I've ruined my life. How can that be restored Today, To answer those questions, we need to go to Genesis chapter 4 now. So please take your Bibles and open up there still near the beginning to Genesis chapter 4. And we'll look at the first 16 verses which tell us a very sad story today. And you might be thinking, well, we've been in Genesis 3, and that's been sad. In some ways, I think this is worse. Because last week, even though we saw the the curse in the wake of uh, the fall, we saw also the hope of the first gospel, that the offspring of the serpent will, or the woman, will crush the head of the serpent. But what we'll see today is, is not much redemption, at least in this passage. Our main character today, the text puts the focus on Cain. So even our outline will be a little different today, but follow along as I read this story. Genesis 4, 1 through 16. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? 
And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today from away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So there we see that sad story. And if you're looking at your outline and the references there, and you're like, well, where's verses 1 and 2, and where's verse 16? Uh, Well, those are really the bookends. That's how we know it's a sad story. It starts with husband and wife holding their firstborn son. It starts on a positive Note, and look at that, even in this moment, honor is being given to God. This child was born with the help of God. And and then there's a brother and they grow up and they have honorable professions. But then we look at the end and it's Cain wandering away. Cain going away from the presence of the Lord and settling in the land of Nod, which if you look at the footnote in your Bible, that, that's the Hebrew word for wandering. That's why it's called the land of Nod, because it is the land of wandering east of Eden. He, they, they've gone out of the garden. Now he's going even further away. How does he get there? How do we go from verse 1 and the joy of a newborn to the sadness of verse 16? Well, the first step down involves these sacrifices. It says there in verse 3, in the course of time. And so we don't know if this was the first time they'd offered sacrifices or if this was something that they were supposed to do uh, regularly. Clearly, there was some expectation of, of what they were going to do. But the text says, clearly, there were these two brothers. They each brought an offering that matched their profession. But God had regard for one, for Abel's, and not for the other. And somehow they knew that. Cain knew that God had no regard for his sacrifice. It doesn't tell us how did God consume Abel's sacrifice with fire and not Cain's. It's possible, but we don't know. But what we do know is that one sacrifice was accepted, one was not, and Cain and Abel knew that. Now, why? Why was one of the offerings acceptable and the other not? Some would suggest, well, that's because Abel's sacrifice was a blood sacrifice and Cain's was not. But if you keep reading through the Bible, you will see there were other acceptable sacrifices to God that were not blood offerings. Offerings of food was something that God accepted. So we have to look for clues. Okay, how do we understand that? We have to look to the text. And if you read the text, it sure seems to highlight the excellence of Abel's sacrifice. It says there in verse four, he brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. One commentator says he bought, he brought the fattest of the firstlings of his flock. That what was choice from what he did. 
Or another commentator says, one worshiper went out of his way to please God and the other simply discharged a duty. Point number one, and and the points are going to be a little different this week because subtitle is how to ruin your life. So if you want to follow in Cain's footsteps, point number one, just go through the motions. Just go through the motions. And what I mean by that is doing something on the outside that you do not believe on the inside. And I think that is what Cain is doing. He was going through the motions of offering some sacrifice, but he did not believe in what he was doing. He did not believe in the importance of what he was doing. He did not have faith in the God to which he was making the offering. And I don't think that's just a guess I have about the text. That's really what the Bible teaches us. Turn with me, keep your finger in Genesis, and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Now, if you were with us at the men's retreat, you might have a well-worn path in your Bible to Hebrews 11. If you weren't, you'll get one as we go through Genesis. We'll be going to Hebrews 11 somewhat frequently because it talks a lot about the people that we see here in Genesis. And it's nice for us going through Genesis to have the whole Bible, not because we're going to see things in the New Testament that exp- or that change the meaning of the Old Testament, but we'll see things that highlight the significance and even the application of what we're seeing here in the Old Testament. And we see something about our text this morning here in Hebrews 11 and verse 4. It says, by faith. Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. So what motivated faith to offer this acceptable sacrifice? It was faith. He believed God. And what is faith? Go back to verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Abel had faith. He, he could look beyond just the realities of a sacrifice to understand what these things meant and why he should be doing them. And that's what motivated him to give the sacrifice that he gave. He did that by faith. And even it says that's why he was commended as righteous. He was commended as righteous by faith. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. He speaks to all of us that there is a way to please God. And it's not by our works, it is by our faith. He did what he did by faith. A real belief in God and the value of what he was doing. And it was the faith that led to righteousness, not the action. And so we need to examine this ourselves. You're all at a church service this morning. You are doing some level of religious activity this morning. Do you believe in what you are doing? And more importantly, do you believe in the God that you are gathered here to worship? And that's what God cares about. God doesn't just see what you're doing. He sees your heart. Turn with me to another passage, to the book of Micah. Micah there, towards the end of the Old Testament, in what we call the Minor Prophets, or what the Hebrews would call the Book of the Twelve, right there at the end of our Old Testament, if it helps, is right between Jonah and Nahum. Micah 6 And verses 6 through 8, it says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? 
Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Shall I offer sacrifices? Is that what's going to please God? Even if I have to sacrifice my firstborn child? No, that's not the idea because verse 8, he's already told you. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And this is one of many Old Testament passages, especially in the prophets that we could have looked at that makes that same point. It's not about just some external actions. God cares about your heart and whether or not there is faith there that leads you to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Or consider what the prophet Samuel said to King Saul, another sad story in the Bible. Samuel asks Saul, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than to the fat of rams. How does this work today? What does it look like when somebody is just going through the motions? I can sum it up in one word, and that word is hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. I'm doing something on the outside that does not match what is going on on the inside. You can show up to church. You can sing as loud as anybody. You can raise your hands. You can take more notes than anybody in the service, but you are shouting at everyone in the car on the way here, and you're going to do the same thing on the way home, and God is not pleased with you because there's something in your heart that is not being reflected in your actions or that you are trying to disguise with your actions. You can post all the Bible verses you want on social media and still be engaging in deceit and sexual immorality. You can serve at the church, but really be serving all for yourself and because you think there is something to gain by it. There is hypocrisy everywhere today, even within the church. And I'm here to tell you that kind of hypocrisy, that going through the motions on the outside while you're not believing, there's no faith in your heart. That is step one to ruining your life. And I want to be clear when I'm saying this, going through the motions, I'm doing something on the outside that I don't believe on the inside. I'm not saying that it is wrong or, you know, to do something even when you don't feel like it. That is not the same thing. And, and that comes up a lot in church. People are like, well, if I read my Bible or fill in the blank with any other good thing that you know you're supposed to do when I don't feel like it, isn't that hypocrisy? No, it's not. Not if you're, it's really faith that is getting you to say, I don't feel like doing this, but I'm going to do it anyways because I believe I believe in God. I believe in what he has told me to do. So even though my flesh doesn't want to do it, I'm going to step out by faith and do it anyways. That's not hypocrisy. That's maturity. And that's not what Cain was doing here. And that's not what a lot of people are doing in their lives. Because even they are doing something, but it's, it's their heart that is not in it. And look at the effects of this as you get towards the end of that part of the passage when it's clear that God has no regard for Cain's offering. Cain is very angry and his face falls. He is sad. I think he is envious of his brother and he is angry. And if you want to get envious and angry, do this. Just go through the motions while you're surrounded by other people who aren't. 
try to go through the, the outside actions of being a Christian without actually being one, you will get frustrated. You will get angry because the people who by faith are actually doing what God says, they are going to experience a blessing in that. There is a reward in seeking God by faith. And when you're going through some of the same outside motions and you're not feeling that reward, you're going to get angry and your face is going to fall and you will feel envious of others because you're just going through the motions. And so this hypocrisy has given birth to envy, has given birth to anger. Cain is on a dangerous road. So God seeks to warn him about it. And we see that in verse six. Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And then with strong language, warning him about sin's desire over him. But then as you see clearly in verse eight, Cain does not listen to God. And one commentator put it well by saying, whereas Eve had to be talked into her sin by the serpent, it appears that Cain would not be talked out of his intended sin, even by the Lord himself. He gets a personal warning from God himself, and he doesn't listen. Step two to ruining your life, ignore God's warnings. Just ignore God's warnings. Keep going into your sin. And what God says really prefigures the next thing that he fails to take responsibility, but it's somewhat like we saw in chapter three, a pedagogical response. God is asking him, not because God is in the dark, not because God doesn't know, but because God is trying to draw the right the, the answers out from Cain so that Cain might learn and change. And so that's why he's saying, why are you angry? God knows, but he wants Cain to see the foolishness of his anger. And he wants Cain to see there's another way. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Cain, if you believe and do the right thing, won't that lead to blessing for you? God shows him that there is a solution, but then he reminds him, well, if you don't do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. That's the same uh, Hebrew phrase as you saw back in chapter 3, verse 16. Your desire shall be for your husband, that you must rule over it. Sin wants to get you, and you need to be careful not to let it. First Peter 5, that, that passage should come to mind. If you're familiar with that passage, if you don't know the reference, you know the, um, you know the language. It talks about how we need to be careful. Watch out. Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The same is true for you. When you leave here today, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. When you wake up tomorrow morning, sin is going to be crouching at the door. The devil is prowling around like a roaring lion. Are you ready for that? And God tells us he's given us a way out of that. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He's not going to allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape. And if you're not saved, that way of escape is through turning from your sin and putting your trust in Christ. And then if you are saved, every temptation comes with a way of escape And the common thread through all of that is going to be by faith in Christ. There is another way for you to live by faith. 
And so God warns all of us. God warned Cain here, and God is warning all of us today. God warns us in a variety of ways. We all have biblical warnings. The Bible warns us about sin and the consequences of sin. Think of Proverbs and the warning that the father gives his son about sexual sin. My son, you know, don't go near the forbidden woman. Yes, her lips drip honey, but in the end, she is death. And nobody that goes into her house comes out alive. It's a warning against the danger of sexual sin. The Old Testament is filled with warnings about idolatry and the futility of idolatry and the judgment that comes in the wake of idolatry. And the New Testament starts to begin to teach us that idolatry isn't just about bowing down to some statue. Covetousness is idolatry. So be warned. The Bible even warns us about other things like the failure to forgive. Do you remember the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 18 of this man who had been forgiven an insurmountable debt But then he goes and fails to forgive someone else. He's put in prison. He's handed over to the torturers. That should be a warning to you if you are not forgiving somebody. God also warns us not just through the Bible, but through our conscience. Every human being is hardwired from the beginning with a God-given sense of right and wrong. But people ignore that. In fact, in our culture, more and more people are being encouraged to ignore that. Even if you look at the writings of people like Sigmund Freud and a lot of what gets praised today in our culture, that the conscience is the problem. But we need to get rid of all of those things and do what you feel like doing. That's not the way we should live. If you have a pastor for a while and you hear the same person preach repeatedly, it's inevitable that you're gonna see them use the same illustration more than once. And I remember one of my old pastors, one of his favorite illustrations was about this subject of uh, the conscience. And it was about a plane that crashed in Spain. And so you have these Spanish-speaking pilots and their plane is too low. It needs to pull up. And, and so the warning systems are all going off. And there's this English voice saying, pull up, pull up, pull up. And finally, the Spanish pilot says, shut up, gringo, and flips off the switch for that warning Signal. That is a picture of what our society is doing. People have a conscience that's saying, pull up, pull up. And they're flipping off the switch and diving into a collision of their sin and into destruction. Listen to your conscience. And in addition to that, God gives us warnings through the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian, uh, your conscience really becomes supercharged with the Holy Spirit. And now you have God living inside you, giving you a greater sense of what is right and wrong. Jesus told his disciples in John 16, one of the purposes of the Holy Spirit would be to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So we know this also shows up not just in believers, but even in non-Christians, where the Spirit will work to convict you, to show you that you are wrong. Are you going to listen or not? And that's where that that needs to be like not a hypothetical thing. That needs to be a very real thing for some of you in this room. Because just by me talking about the conscience, just by me talking about spiritual warnings, there is something on your mind. There is something in your life that you know right now is wrong. There's a habit that's becoming more and more of a pattern in your life that you know does not honor God. Listen to God's warning right now. 
and repent of that. Don't let that continue in your life. God also sometimes gives us personal warnings and not so much God himself, but God will put a person in your life. Someone will come to you and say, hey, I'm seeing something and I'm concerned about it. I'm concerned about this, the way you're talking or the way that you're thinking or the way that you're behaving. Are you going to listen to that or not? And many of the people that I've known in ministry that at some point then have been disqualified from ministry. When when you're looking back and, and things are starting to come out after the fact of everything blowing up, many times you look back and that person who's now disqualified had someone come to them and warn them saying, hey, I'm concerned about the path that you're on. And they ignored the warning. God's gonna bring people into your life to give you a warning. And sometimes maybe there's part of what they're saying that doesn't understand what's going on, but there's some truth to it. Are you gonna ignore it or not? Cain ignores all of God's warnings. And you see that in verse eight, the language used here in verse eight is clearly used to describe deliberate, premeditated murder. That's what happens. Cain spoke to his brother. Some translations will even add, hey, let's go out into the field. And there he kills him. He rises up and kills his brother. This was no accident. This was no, oops, Abel's dead. This was cold-blooded murder, ignoring the direct warning of God. So then God comes to Cain again in verse 9. And again, he asks a question. Even though he already knows, God asks, where is Abel your brother? And Cain responds, I do not know, am I my brother's keeper? Cain does not accept responsibility. Now, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. Remember when God speaks to Adam back in chapter three? What's going on here, Adam? It was the woman you gave me. What's going on here, Abe? It was the serpent. The devil made me do it. And now we see Cain do a similar thing, but I think in some ways even a worse thing. Cain acts as if not only the responsibility belongs to someone else, but that there's no responsibility at all. Am I my brother's keeper? I have no responsibility towards my brother. And if you want to ruin your life, that's step three. Don't take responsibility. Don't take responsibility for your sin. Never do that if you want to ruin your life. And as a pastor, unfortunately, I get a front row seat too many times to watching people and their failure to take responsibility for their sin play a very active role in ruining their life, ruining their marriage, ruining their family. You see this, unfortunately, many times in marriage counseling. And these are the kinds of marriage counseling where there is no counselor that can help you as long as all you are doing is pointing fingers at the other person. Will they do this? Will they do that? Will they never do this? Will they always do that? Until you fundamentally change that type of language, there's never going to be reconciliation in that relationship. This happens between parents and their children's parents. Do you want to ruin your relationship with your children and not really know them as much as they get older? Well, then make sure you never apologize to them for what you do wrong and make sure you act like you have done everything right all the time, right? Never take responsibility. That's going to destroy your relationship with your kids and kids. That's going to destroy your relationship with your parents. If you blame everything on them and you never take responsibility for your sin. Even a lot of family conflict, whether that's within one family, extended family, it's going to have to 
reconciliation is going to have to begin, and this isn't true in families, this is true within a church family, this is true within maybe even a workplace, reconciliation will start when somebody stands up and said, I did something wrong. I did something I wasn't supposed to do, and I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And I'm going to try not to do that again. And that's where the road to reconciliation will really come in. And the victim mentality in our society is rampant. Well, we spoke last year about how that was prophesied about 30 years ago in that great source of wisdom and insight, Calvin and Hobbes, right? But you see the, the, the culture doing this, blaming the past, or people blame some special circumstance in their life. And I think this boils down to the average person and many people in the church into some kind of thought, well, well nobody knows what I'm going through. Uh, nobody understands what I have to to deal with. And first off, that's, that's never entirely true because we've already seen no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. And, and this could be used a variety of things. Well, no one understands how hard my marriage is or my job is, or you could fill in the blanks with, with a lot of things, but you need to understand that even if there is some particularly hard circumstance in your life that not everyone can relate to, that is never an excuse to not do what you know is right. And every time you try to pass the blame for your sin onto your circumstance, you're the one that's going to suffer the most. And that's because you can fool other people and you can even fool yourself, but you cannot fool God. And that's what happens here. Cain's response, am I my brother's people, is not fooling God. Look at verse 10. And the Lord said, what have you done? The blood or the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Cain, you can lie to everybody else. You can lie to yourself, but you can't lie to me, God says, because God hears, God sees, and God knows. And the same is true for you. God sees, God knows what is going on in your heart. So passing the blame to somebody else will not work. We use a phrase often that comes from Numbers 32, 23. And in that scene, you've got these tribes that they want to live on that eastern side of the Jordan River, but they make a deal. Well, we'll, we'll set up a place for our families to stay, but we will go over and we will fight and we will be a part of this conquest of Canaan with you. And Moses is saying, okay, I'm going to hold you to that And then it says in that verse, but if you do not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. And you can be sure today, your sin will find you out too. Time and truth go hand in hand. If there is hypocrisy in your heart, it will be exposed. You need to take responsibility for that sin. Another thing one of my other old pastors used to say a lot is, you don't have to feel guilty to be guilty. Even if you have found a way to to make yourself feel all right about it, that doesn't mean you're actually all right about it. Because God knows, God sees, and God hears. And in this case, then God brings the consequence. Verse 11, and now you are cursed from the ground. And as you will see, this seems to be even worse than the curse that was given to Cain's father, Adam. 
You saw back in chapter three, the ground was cursed because of Adam, but he was still going to eat from it. It was just going to be through the sweat of his brow and in the midst of thorns and thistles. Now he tells Cain, no, the ground is not going to yield for you. So you're not going to be able to settle down and have a farm, Cain. You're going to become, it says, a fugitive and a wanderer. And the Hebrew word there for fugitive has the idea of restless. You, Cain, are going to be a restless wanderer, foraging about, trying to scrape out some subsistence so that you can live. Because the ground is not going to work for you. And so Cain responds in verse 13 by saying, my punishment is greater than I can bear. I can't bear this punishment. Now, the Hebrew word there, you might even have a note in your Bible, the Hebrew word for punishment, it could be rightly translated punishment. It could also be rightly translated guilt. And so it raises a fair question. Is Cain's statement here some expression of remorse? Is there some ownership here on his part, or is this just a complaint? And I think the way it's translated is, is correct. And I think it'd be right to understand it. No, this is more of a complaint from Cain. And, and the biggest thing that leads me to believe that is in verse 16, even though what, what you're going to see in between is God offering some measure of grace to Cain, even though God could have had every right to strike Cain down dead on the spot, he doesn't do it. God shows him some measure of mercy, but despite that, Cain, he, he goes away from the presence of the Lord at the end. Well, I don't think what we're seeing here is Cain moving back towards the Lord in repentance. He's going even farther away. And so step four, complain about the consequences. Complain about the consequences. Don't take responsibility for your sin, but then when the, when the consequences for your sin come, well, make sure you complain about them as being too harsh or unfair. People do this a lot. People have... Uh, theological ways to complain today, even acting like, well, if God is sovereign, somehow that lets humans off the hook. And that makes God's judgment unfair. And if you ever want one passage, that can come up a lot uh, within the church. It can come up a lot in evangelism conversations. If you want one passage from the Bible to speak to that instead of some philosophy book, go to Romans 3, 5 through 8, and it'll answer that. What if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God? Are we basically going to say it's, it's not right for God to inflict wrath on people? By no means, he says. And he, these are actually foolish, wicked questions asked by people whose condemnation is just. God is sovereign, but we are responsible, and God is right when he judges. But think of how people do this all the time. They look at some problem in their life, a financial problem, a relationship problem, a health problem. And even many times when that's not just like the standard problems that we all have uh, because we live in a post-Genesis 3 cursed fallen world, but maybe they're even looking at there's a financial problem, there's a relational problem, there's a health problem in my life because of my sin. And in light of all that, they still act like, what did I do to deserve all of this? When the reality is, God is being more gracious to you than you deserve. We complain about the consequences of our sin in our life when, if we're being honest, they could be, they should be much worse. And that was true for Cain. We already mentioned the mercy. God says, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And God even puts some mark on Cain to warn people about that, to protect 
Cain. And I've heard every theory on this mark from it was the first tattoo to it was a dog that followed Cain around. Not so sure about the dog idea, but whatever the mark was, it was clear and it communicated the effect that God intended. So God was being merciful to Cain. And to many people today, God is showing some level of mercy to you. The consequences aren't as bad as they should be, yet you still act as if they are unfair or unjust. Isn't this a sad story? And there it is. That's how you can ruin your life. Just four easy steps. Just go through the motions, ignore God's warnings, don't take responsibility, and complain about the consequences. And thank you for bearing with me. Some of you are like, I, I don't want to write this point down. I don't, I don't want to do this. And normally, you know, we try to draw imperative points that highlight how we should respond to the truth of the text. And on a normal Sunday, if you came up to me and said, hey, all these points that I should go do, I'm already doing all of these things perfectly. I'm going to be like, really? But if you come up to me today and say, hey, I've got these four down, I'm probably going to say, yeah, I agree with you, right? Because all of us, we look at these things and we have all done these things to some extent in our lives. And so clearly the entire outline this morning is somewhat tongue in cheek. No, don't go do these things. We should do the opposite. You don't want to ruin your life. If you want your life not to be ruined, you you need to do the opposite of these things. And I want to show us one biblical example that shows us how, how to do the opposite of these things. Turn with me to Psalm 51. Turn with me to Psalm 51, and we're going to see the counter example, the opposite example of David. What David and Cain have in common is they are both murderers. Cain murdered his brother Abel. David murdered in a somewhat indirect way, but is responsible for the murder of Uriah the Hittite, who was the husband of Bathsheba, with whom David committed adultery. And in the wake of that sin, in the wake of that murder, you see David respond in a very different way than Cain. Look at the first four verses of Psalm 51. David cries out, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You see there at the end of verse four, that's the opposite of point four. David isn't complaining about the consequences. He's admitting and confessing the justice of the consequences in his life. And and there were consequences. David's life bears some devastating consequences of this sin. If you read through 2 Samuel, it's a different book after Bathsheba than it was before. There's some ruin brought into David's life because of his sin, but he is admitting the justice of the pain in his life in the wake of his sin. And he is not neglecting to take responsibility for his sin. He is owning it. I know my transgressions, verse three, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned. That's not him trying to pass the buck by acting like, well, I haven't sinned against other people. He's saying, the worst thing about it is, God, I've sinned against you. So this is not a way for David to minimize his sin. It's a way for David, he's actually maximizing his sin, saying, no, 
the worst thing I've done, God, is I sinned against you. That's wrong. And so your judgments, God, are just. He takes responsibility. And he heeds a warning. Even if you look back at the beginning of the chapter, if your Bible's like mine, there's like a bold italicized thing at the top of the chapter, create in me a clean heart, O God. Not there in the Hebrew Bible. That's something whoever translated your English Bible put in there to help you have some idea of the topic of this chapter. But below that in my Bible, there's this all caps, small print there to the choir master, a Psalm of David, not at me if, if I'm not a crazy person, if you see what I'm talking about. That's in the Hebrew Bible. That was meant to be there to explain the context. And it says to the choir master, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, what did Nathan do? He warned David. He did it creatively. He told him a story. David, there's this rich guy and he has a poor neighbor who has just one little lamb. But when the visitor comes, the rich guy, he goes and he takes the poor little guy's lamb and kills it and serves it to his guests. And when David says, that man should die, Nathan says, you are that man, David. So David was warned. What did he do? He repented. He owned up in the moment of the warning and he turned to God and cried out for mercy. And that changed David's perspective. Look at what he says in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And look at what he goes on to say next. Cast me not away from your presence. That's the same Hebrew word as Genesis 4.16. In the wake of Cain's sin, he went away from the presence of God. In the wake of David's sin, he pleads with God, don't cast me out of your presence. He wants to be with God. And then you see, this is not David just going through the motions. He's not just being forced into some apology. He means it. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. You want to not go through the motions? That's the heart you need. A broken heart, a contrite heart, a humble heart. And that's what David has. At every point we've looked at for Cain, David does the opposite. But the whole psalm begins with the cry, have mercy on me, O God. And we need to ask, is that possible? Is it possible for God to have mercy on someone who has ruined their life? And if so, how? Well, that's the best part. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. And the whole point of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. And if you want to be in the presence of God, it's through Jesus and his sacrifice. It's not through external things. It's not through ceremony. It is through faith in Christ. Because we have not come to Mount Sinai where the law was given. We have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem. That's what it says where we're going to pick it up in verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, 
the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We're coming to Christ and his blood, which has been sprinkled, Hebrews tells us, not in some human temple, not in the tabernacle, but in heaven itself for our sins. And it's that sprinkled blood of Jesus Christ that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does that mean? What what, what words are we talking about? Do you remember back in Genesis 3.10 or 4.10? Where God says, your your brother's blood, it's crying out to me from the ground. What word or what kind of words is the blood of Abel crying out? It's crying out justice. It's crying out vengeance. But then you have the blood of Christ crying out forgiveness, mercy, grace for you And for me, even though every single one of us is responsible for the ruin we have brought into our own lives, the blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So when you own up to your sin and you cry out for God for for mercy, there is hope for you. There is hope for you in the blood of Christ. And again, the whole goal of that is not just for forgiveness, it's for you to be in the presence of God. That's again, part of what Hebrews is saying. The presence of God under the old covenant was so limited. One person, one time a year with the the requisite sacrifices was able to go in. But now there is a new and living way that's been opened for us through the blood of Christ, which has been sacrificed on our behalf. There's a new and living way to be in the presence of God. This message is not about having a nice life instead of ruining it. This message is about you living in the presence of God because that's where the good life is. You need to be in the presence of God and the only way to get there is through the blood of Christ. And so the question is, what are you gonna do about that today? You're here and you're being warned. And maybe some of you, you know I have ruined my life. I I, I am wandering away from the presence of God. There is hope for you right now. On your end of things, it looks like the opposite of what we've done. Own up to your sin, confess it, repent of it, and put your faith in Christ and his sacrifice. And you today can be ransomed, healed, restored, and forgiven. And if you're here today and you're following Christ and you're starting to allow some sin, some sin is crouching at your door and it's creeping into your life, listen to the warning today and turn away from that sin and pursue Christ. What are you gonna do? today. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that we would all come humbly today. The sacrifices that you accept, your word says, are those of a broken and contrite heart. God, I pray that every single one of us would have that kind of heart today, that we would come and realize there is not one single person in this room today that can act as if somehow I haven't ruined my own life with my sin. God, every single one of us is guilty. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but there is hope. There is hope that we can live in your presence. There is hope through the sprinkled blood of 
Christ that cries out for our forgiveness, that cries out for mercy and and offers us your grace. So God, I wanna plead with you for those here today that are wandering from you, God. They're, They're living in sin, they're living in darkness. And God, I wanna pray that today would be the day that they would confess their sin. God, if we say we have no sin, we're lying. The truth isn't in us. But if we confess our sin, you are faithful and and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, God. If there's anyone here today that is in that camp, God, and I know that there is, would you draw their hearts to you? And God, all of us, may we heed your warnings. Sin is crouching at the door for us today. God, help us to rule over it not just through our own efforts and our own wisdom. Help us to do it through faith in Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.